friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today we're going to focus our show, Conversations with Consequences, on what's going on in Texas. You have heard of it, I'm sure. Texas passed the heartbeat bill, which effectively bans abortions after six weeks when we can detect the fetal heartbeat. That's a moment uh, for me as a fetal radiologist that is a very exciting one because um, when you can... When you can see the baby's heart beating very independently of the mom's at a very fast clip, it's a really a lovely moment because that's the moment that you say, okay, it's a pregnancy, it's a baby, it's alive. This is a very uh, beautiful moment for the parents. Um, you can hear the heartbeat if you're, in the, if you're in the room, if you're looking at the images later, you can watch it happen because uh, of the color Doppler, the way the blood directional, the blood changes direction and you can see it change from red to blue. And again, it's a very different pattern from the, from the maternal arterial pulse. So it's a very, it's a very pretty moment. It, it declares itself as, yes, this is a new human being. This is a little son or daughter. And I want to stay. I want to be alive. I want to, I want to live out this beautiful life that God has given me. We hope for the best at that point. In Texas, they have passed this law at the bottom of the hour. We're going to talk to a good friend of the show, Dr. Jennifer Roback-Morse from the Ruth Institute, along with my TCA colleague, Ashley McGuire, to discuss how companies in Texas are reacting to this law. Many of them are actually threatening to leave the state or they're offering free abortions or transportation to more liberal states for their employees. Dr. Morse says it's uh, just another step into to the slavery of sexual liberation. And many CEOs in Texas admit that abortion is actually a core value of their company. How could that be? Well, we're going to talk to Dr. Morse about that at the bottom of the hour. At the top of the hour, we're going to look at the real work at hand as pro-life pregnancy centers have been flooded with mothers anxious to keep their babies, but they need lots and lots of help and resources. Chelsea Human of the Human Coalition joins us to talk about the great work they are doing within the state mobilizing to help women choose life. First, I'm happy to have my co-host and TCA colleague to kick off the show. It's so good for me, Maureen, when you're co-host to sing with me on the show. It's so delightful, and I love to have your wisdom, especially when we do pro-life topics, because you've been in the pro-life field much longer than I, not because you're older than me, because I happen to be older than you, (laughs) but because you were doing this when you were in diapers, I think, and I started later. When, how long have you been really involved in the pro-life movement? Oh, gosh, it's been at least 25 years um, and even longer if you count uh, advocacy during my college years. But, Gracie, I always love joining you to talk about pro-life issues because you bring such a unique perspective with your medical background. And it's not just the fact that you're a doctor, but the fact that you're a radiologist and you are a professional who gets to look in that window to the womb every day at your work. And you have such a beautiful and tender way of 
of describing the little bouncing baby boy or girl that you see every day swimming around in his or her mother's womb. Well, I really do feel a strong connection to my patients because I, I, they, they're very much my patients. And for me, when I hear uh, pro-abortion activists talk about women's health and focus everything on, on the woman and and what she wants and how she's going to be inconvenienced or how, you know, even people who go much further and say, well, she's like a hostage that's, you know, being made by law to keep up, you know, to support this child that she doesn't want. Um, it, I'm just amazed all the time because to me, I have such a strong and warm connection with that baby um, that I see every single day. <laughs> Different babies, but to me, they're sort of always the same baby. It's always this perfect little human uh, with so much promise, so much future, so much hope that uh, I don't see how the rest of the world doesn't see babies that way. Well, the warmth that you feel and love that you feel for both of your patients is so apparent in the way you talk about it, but also in your writing. And you have this marvelous uh, op-ed in the National Review that just appeared this week and it's just it's fantastic and so touching the way you speak about how you have two patients when you're doing an ultrasound on a pregnant woman and you just kind of recount anecdotally how those conversations go between you and the OBGYN and you also talk about the fact that these babies can feel pain um Talk to us about that a little bit, the, how the science has really progressed so much in understanding fetal pain. Well, you know, this is a year since all the years that you've been involved in pro-life. This is probably one of the first years that you feel that there might be this this great possibility that Roe could fall. The You know, obviously Roe v. Wade, the case that decided all this in 1973. And it is really amazing to think that we've been under this same abortion regime since 1973, and yet so much has changed. And as, as physicians, as nurses, as people who work with, with pregnant women and their children, and even with newborn babies like in the ICU, there has been so much progress in science and in fetal science, in the way that we relate to fetal patients, in the way that we understand them, our, our, a much greater understanding, especially of their capacity to feel pain. Um, and also all these different ways that we interact with them that was impossible before, like these beautiful ultrasounds that I do, the fact that babies now born at 21 weeks of gestation are being cared for in ICUs and and surviving. And um, and also the way, for, and I mentioned this in my piece, babies uh, in, their, in, in the second trimester and the third trimester are operated on. They are taken out of the womb, operated on, and put back in to finish growing. And all these things were inconceivable in 1973. So I do feel that I, that the, hopefully the court, the Supreme Court, will, will relook at Roe with a new, fresh idea and understanding of the science of, of these young human beings. Well, so much has changed, you're exactly right, since 1973. And I love the way you say in your piece in National Review that if Roe was based on science, then let it stand or fall today on modern science. Um, mm. That was a great line in in your piece. But it, it's so much is different than 1973. So much is different for women facing an unplanned 
pregnancy. There's so many different avenues of support now. And I know we're going to talk to someone from the Human Coalition in a few minutes. But there's, you know, there's 3,000 crisis pregnancy centers around the country that that walk with women every day. So, so much has changed since 1973. And it is indeed a great, uh, a great time of hope. Well, with that, why don't we welcome Chelsea Human of the Human Coalition, who can tell us about that other side of things. It's not just about um, saving those unborn children from, from being eliminated, but also helping their families welcome them into the world. Welcome to the show, Chelsea. Well, hi, thanks for having me. Oh, no, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I know you're a very busy person helping women welcome their children into the world, working to end abortion, as we like to think we are, too, at the Catholic Association and on Conversations with Consequences. Why don't you tell our listeners what the Human Coalition is? What do you do and what are your foundational principles? Yes, well, Human Coalition, I'm so proud to be a part of their ministry and work. Um, They're a nonprofit with a network of clinics across the country serving women every every day who are actively seeking abortion. And they come alongside these women and they connect them with gynecological care and assistance. And 76% of these women who are seeking abortion say they would prefer to parent if their circumstances were different. So Human Coalition says, let's make those circumstances different. Let's help you get a job and childcare, whatever it is she needs um, in the ultimate hopes that she will choose life. It's so interesting that number you gave, 76% of women seeking abortions actually really don't want one. Of course, when they end up in an abortion clinic, the abortion industry uh, makes them believe that this is their only option and doesn't offer alternatives. So so tell us how you do this. How do you reach these women who really are in this state of panic, you know, sheer panic, and don't want to abort but feel they have no other option? How do you reach them? Yes, well, we reach them through just traditional advertising methods. Um, they find us online like they would an abortion clinic. But when they come to us, as you mentioned, we offer so much more than, uh, what you know, abortion providers quick fix. We offer long-term solutions and assistance. So she comes in and she can reach us sometimes through our virtual clinics where they call in like telehealth or they can walk into one of our actual brick and mortar clinics. Um, and really they tell us it's female driven. So what's going on in their lives, what assistance they need. And we begin the process of alleviating sometimes really dire circumstances they're facing. You know, one client of ours, for instance, she was completely homeless, had a 17-year-old who was living with um, her son in her car and found out she was pregnant. And we walked with her for um, almost two years until she ultimately was able to buy her own home. She chose life because we were able to help her see past her circumstances. You know, uh, Chelsea, one of my favorite things about your website, because I've spent a lot of time on your website, it's worth doing so on your uh, website, humancoalition.org. You have a lot of videos and they have really powerful testimonies from women who thought they needed an abortion until they met the Human Coalition. Tell us about some of those stories and, and, and those videos. And I really commend your website to our listeners. Well, thank you for that. Yes. I mean, women 
facing abortion. They're not the women you see in, in liberal media, right? These are real women and they don't walk into abortion clinics saying, I am woman, hear me roar. What they're walking in is saying, I need help. And of course, we believe abortion is not real help. Women leave to face the same circumstances they just came from. And most women actually feel pressure and coercion from partners or family or friends to have an abortion. And so we offer them freedom. We offer them so much more than that. Long-term assistance. Um, our clients, the number one things they really walk in saying they need help with is affordable childcare. Uh, many of these women, the majority actually already have children at home and say, I just can't afford to work. I'm a single mom and have childcare for three kids. And so we help them find affordable childcare. Many of them also need jobs. Um, it's very just tangible needs and resources um, that we as a society should just create a society that's more sustainable for these moms. Chelsea, tell us about the origins of the Human Coalition. How did this all start? Well, it started about 10 years ago. Um, I wasn't there at the time, but Human Coalition started with um, a bunch of businessmen. My president is, is one of them, and they came from the business world. They were consultants, and they really just had a heart for this issue because of their faith and believing in um, you know, that we are made in the image of God, and because of that, we are good, and they just understood that abortion is violence against vulnerable children. And starting with that premise, they said, let's use our advertising skills and backgrounds to see if we can compete with Planned Parenthood's advertising and abortion provider advertising online. And so they started that way. And then through partnering with clinics along the way, they changed that model to be successful. Now we have virtual clinics and physical clinics. And the virtual clinics, for instance, in Texas, it's statewide. We can reach any woman, even in rural areas, but we'll partner with like a local pregnancy resource center who she comes to us, opens up to us. We find more on the phone. Millennial women, especially, and younger women are like so much more um, open to us on the phone because they're used to technology. And so then they'll go from there to a, a physical clinic and get free sonograms and clinic help. And of course, all of the women we employ to serve women are professionals. We have licensed counselors, social workers, and nurses and doctors on staff because they are in significantly intense circumstances and they deserve the best care. I find it interesting that you seem to have started, that the Human Coalition seems to have started as uh, as going head-to-head -head with Planned Parenthood in that advertising space, right? So a woman yeah. is is terrified and she, she well, she's scared, not necessarily terrified, but she, she clicks on the keyboard and she puts in unexpected pregnancy or, oh no, I'm pregnant, and Human Coalition pops up with a life-saving message or a, at least mm -hmm. a message of hope instead of a message of death. Yes, you're right. We're hopeful for unborn children through our work that's the goal is always just to save lives but truthfully we're hope we're more hopeful for women too we can't separate mothers from their children and we want these children to be born into successful stable homes we want their families to flourish um, and everything we do is geared towards mother and child we advocate for both um, and then two years ago we opened up my my advocacy arm with human coalition action where we said let's take all of this wealth of knowledge we have about the women and the obstacles they're 
facing that we serve and turn it into policy reform. And so that's where we got the idea. We said, we want to compete with Planned Parenthood. We have to have a government arm and we have to go head to head with them and their model. Um, So we have both the boots on the ground, but we also have the government arm in the hopes that we really will end abortion in our lifetimes. That's our goal. So shifting to the policy round, Texas has recently passed this heartbeat bill, which essentially has prohibited abortion after a heartbeat is detected, Senate Bill Number 8. Tell us how the passage of this bill has affected your work on the ground. Have you had a huge uptick in women accessing your services? Yes, we have. We are very proud of the Texas heartbeat bill. We advocated for that bill strongly. I was personally involved in in the the making of that bill. Um, And we knew two things going in. One, that SB8 was was going to be the most successful chance we've ever had in 50 years at regulating abortion. And we we went in knowing that we were going to make it constitutional. And there were some very brilliant attorneys besides me involved in that process as well. But the goal was we, we want to make a meaningful regulation of abortion. Um, and then second, we wanted to do it in a place like Texas where there's a huge infrastructure in place to serve women in need seeking abortion. So there's a hundred million dollars by Texas legislature and leadership, Republican leadership that goes towards women seeking abortion already in place. They've expanded Medicaid and they have healthy Texas women. So the infrastructure and the public programs in Texas are really unmatched. um, And I'm proud of that. Human coalition does proud work in those programs. Um, So that's, that's, we knew the infrastructure was there. And then now we're seeing the influx of that as we, regulate abortion. Of course, there are still women in need out there and we're here to serve them. And um, Texas has enabled us to do that through alternatives to abortion and other ways. Um, And really what we're seeing at the clinic level is a few things. I would say three categories of women. We're seeing women who are extremely determined to have an abortion and they are angry and upset and they just head out of state for those procedures. Um, So they're going to go to Oklahoma and Louisiana and bordering states to continue to obtain abortion care. So we need to be in prayer for them. The second category is women who it gives them a minute to breathe and it gives them a minute to say, well, I'm in this this percentage of women who predominantly want to parent, but but don't see how. And this gives me time to figure out how. And so we're walking them back um, and having those conversations with them. They're still upset and they're still frustrated, but it gives them the time to start to like think through problem solving for their circumstances. And then the last category are women who are honestly relieved. They were on the fence anyways. They feel pressured and coerced into the decision. And they say, okay, let me look at other options now um, and begin to see hope. So that's what we're seeing at the clinic level. So interesting. Well, your holistic approach towards building a culture of life is really a model for the pro-life movement. It's so impressive. And I just want to circle back to that $100 million that the state of Texas appropriated to help women in need as part of this alternatives to abortion um, provision, because the media is really not reporting on that. So do you mind just elaborating on that a little bit more? Texas appropriated $100 million to help women in need. 
Yes, they did. This last session, um, it was already an $80 million program. They expanded that to $100 million this last session. It's really an unprecedented type program, but it's it's led by Republican leadership. I know that the other side likes to say that they want to serve women and we don't care about women. But the truth of the matter is we have spent so much money in the state of Texas serving women in the, in the public sector. And it's Republicans who are pro-life who are driving that. And then at the private sector level, Pregnancy resource centers in the state outnumber abortion clinics almost eight to one. And those are nonprofit, usually religiously affiliated or faith based nonprofits that are just there to serve women. And so I really love to just tout that because we're proud of our work. We serve women. We love women. And I don't think that that message gets out there enough, but we really have the market on abilities and boots on the ground serving these women Um, and abortion providers really just profit off of them. And so I'm I'm happy to see their doors close. And ours, of course, are all open. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And I'm here alongside my co-host and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. We're talking to Chelsea Human of the Human Coalition about her important work and the coalition's important work helping women and babies choose life and feel empowered and um, helped along in that decision and, and really warmly welcomed into the world. What a wonderful thing. Chelsea, we spoke to Archbishop Cordelion just last week of, of San Francisco, and he was telling us, we, we were talking, we talked about the heartbeat bill. We talked about, he was really excited about Texas really coming through for women with this with, with this $100 million and, and providing that other side of things. It's not enough to say, let's not have abortions. We have to do the other side and say, let's, let's be there for those women and those babies. How important are your coalition uh, contacts with, with faith leaders in, in different churches and different denominations? Yeah, so I think they're vital to our cause. Um, we know that, that Christians and Catholic charities are make up the bulk work of charitable giving here and abroad. Um, we are really, because of our faith, you know, we, we serve the least among us. We believe that's part of bringing love and, and Jesus' kingdom here, right? And so um, our partnership, we are, you know, interfaith. We, we are Christian and we hire Christians, but that also includes Catholic. And then we have partnerships with really, really incredible groups in the charitable world that are also faith-based on this issue. Chelsea, can you tell us about, you have this very nifty graph on your website about lab-driven divisions, and it sort of divides things into your marketing outreach, you have contact centers, then you have the physical women's care clinics, continuum of care, church outreach. Tell us a little bit about that. It's Clearly, this is run by people who are smart business people. Yes. So, at the clinic level, everything we do, um, we are constantly understanding that every minute goes by with a woman is a woman is an opportunity to save her child's life. And so we are constantly just making, ensuring that our processes are the best towards helping her and helping her choose life. Um, but we also partner with churches across the country for really support, but also we know that we can't do it alone and we need our communities to holistically come around women, you know, um, and partnership with churches helps with that. I always give the example, if childcare is the number one reason 
women seek abortion and we have churches filled with retirees with time on their hands or empty buildings during the week, um, that would be a great role for the church to fill is to open up childcare or volunteer to help take care of children um, in our in our communities. And so church partnership is important also because 40% of women who obtain abortions are sitting in our pews. And um, so this is not an issue outside the church. It's one that the church helping us understand the value of human life in the womb and God's design for us, but also serving women in our pews. You know, that all goes hand in hand. Chelsea, circling back to the law itself, the heartbeat law, and you're a lawyer and you understand it very well. How is it that that law at six weeks is constitutional? Yes. Well, I love this question. 13 states have passed heartbeat bills that ban abortion after heartbeat is detected and 13 states have failed. Texas's version is the only one enacted because it's different. So it uses current legal mechanisms to really keep keep the bill unable to be challenged <laughs> is the goal. So for instance, most of the other heartbeat bills, the government is the one enforcing that bill. If an abortion provider conducts an illegal abortion, the government would be the one to come in and stop that provider. In the Texas bill, there's no government enforcement whatsoever. It is exclusively done through civil lawsuits. So organizations or individuals who hear of an illegal abortion can sue that provider directly for that child whose heartbeat was stopped from beating. And that is the secret to this bill. It, it really keeps it out of federal courts. They sue in state courts. And really, there's no constitutional violation if there's no government actor involved. Um, so there's a lot. It's complicated. It's complex. And I'm happy to go into it in more detail. But really, through this private enforcement mechanism. It is difficult for Planned Parenthood to know A, when and who is going to sue them so they can't stop the bill from being enacted. And without a government enforcement mechanism, there's no government to enjoin or stop from acting. Since you were involved with the passage of this bill and particularly on the alternatives to abortion provision, the $100 million appropriated, can you tell us, did Planned Parenthood support the $100 million as an alternative to abortion? Did they actively oppose it? Were they just silent on it? How, how did that play out on the ground there in Austin? Yeah, that is a really, really great question. All of the abortion providers adamantly oppose alternatives to abortion, as do the Democrats. So Democrats are always trying to cut funding. Um, they don't support our bill, the Every Mother Matters Act, which says that every single woman, before she obtains an abortion, gets an offer of help. Just that's it. Just an offer. Can we help you? Do you need anything? And Democrats and abortion providers alike are opposed to that. Wow. And, and you know, that really does go along with their mindset, though, because it, in order to fully support abortion, you have to always act as though it's the best choice in every situation. And it's a shock to us who, who have a different idea of uh, the humanity of the unborn, but it does make sense in their, in their twisted logic. Yes. Well, we, I mean, I want to say we're really pro-woman. I mean, we don't Abortion providers, they prey on minority communities. 80% of Planned Parenthoods are within walking distance to minority communities. They make exorbitant profit off of these women in need. Um, and so, of course, they have an interest in their billion-dollar industry continuing, and providing women real options and care would, would cut into that. 
right? And they send the message of you can't, you're incapable, you're unable. You know, I think there's so many lies on their side, but the message that we send women is you can do this. You are intelligent. You can get a job. You are able to care for this child. Let's help you. Um, but abortion sends the message that there's one option. You know, one of the things that I think personally bothers me the most besides completely being desensitized to the humanity of the child in the womb is that they really patronize women and hide what a, the reality of abortion is. We have so many clients who come to us and say, oh, I had no idea. I didn't know the procedure was like that. I didn't know my child can move its fingers and feel pain. And, you know, the real science is on our side. Science lets us know what's happening in the womb with the development of the child. And abortionists hide all of that information from women. It's so true, Chelsea. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really applaud your work and we'll keep you and Human Coalition in our prayers. And thank you especially so much for all you do leading the charge, helping women choose life. To learn more about their great work, please visit humancoalition.org. Thank you again. Thank you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We are very happy to have my TCA colleague, Ashley McGuire, with me to welcome Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse from the Ruth Institute. Welcome to the show, Dr. Morse. I'm so glad to be with you. Dr. Morse, you um, recently wrote a piece for the National Catholic Register about the corporate hysteria over Texas's new pro-life law. And you specifically talk about companies that are offering a relocation assistance for employees who urgently need to get out of the state. And you, you even talk about some of these dating and, and actually kind of hookup sites weighing in on this issue. Why are these companies... Uh, why do they care about this law? And are they being a little bit disingenuous when they say that their profits are at stake? Or is that, what do they mean? What's at stake for them? Well, a number of things are at stake. And I think the main thing you need to see, the big picture here, is that the whole society has reorganized itself around contraception and abortion. So the contraceptive ideology is now thoroughly ingrained in society. Every part of society has sort of adapted to it and worked its worked itself around it. And so everybody's counting on being able to have sex whenever they want to without ever being inconvenienced by a live baby, by the responsibilities of a baby. That's considered normal. Sex is now normally a sterile recreational activity with no social consequences. That's what, how people think. And so what you're seeing in the, these corporations is a playing out of that fact in one way or another. Okay, so they've got employees who think, oh my gosh, I'm used to doing whatever I want sexually, and what if I need an abortion? I can't have one. Oh my gosh, get me to someplace civilized like Oklahoma. I mean, you know, just cross the state line, get me out of here, you know, kind of thing. It's just kind of, so that, that's why it looks hysterical to us, but to them, you know, this is a this is a big deal. It's very interesting, Dr. Morris, because in the earlier segment, in the last segment of this show, we spoke to Chelsea Human from the from the Human Coalition, 
And we were talking to her about how Texas has invested $100 million into supporting pregnant women who choose to keep their children. It's a it's a black and white <laughs> difference in the response. The one response is, wait, we're going to move heaven and earth so that you can abort. And the other response is, hey, we're going to move heaven and earth so that you don't have to abort. We're going to give you a different choice. It's really interesting. But, but what it shows is that abortion, contraception, really the whole sexual revolution is always presented to us as if it is a live and let live kind of a thing. How will my abortion affect you? How will my ad- divorce affect you? How will my same-sex marriage affect you? And and with that cover story, and that's really what it is, it, that, that's what's disingenuous right there, is that argument. That it becomes then the, the entering wedge, the nose in the camel's tent, the Trojan horse, whatever you want to call it, that becomes the pretext for ushering in a completely different social-sexual system, which really cannot coexist with the Christian worldview of human sexuality and the society built around human sexuality, see? So you, the, the, the world of traditional Christian sexual morality is a very different world than the world of the sexual revolution. They cannot coexist. The revolutionaries have always known that. They've always been trying to lull us to sleep about that so that we don't resist them too much. But now they feel they're coming down the home stretch and they're out to wipe out any uh, last traces of resistance to their worldview and that's what that's what's trying to uh, trying to block so-called gay conversion therapy that's what that's all about um, you know they're, they're mandating transgenderism that kind of stuff all of that is about uh, entrenching so that it's about creating occupied territory here um, for the for the revolution but dr morris yes the christian worldview the judeo-christian worldview and the worldview espoused by you know centuries of mankind from all different cultures is that the family is the basis of uh, is the foundation of society and that organizing ourselves in such a way as to support that and support women and children and men taking care of the children they engender and all that even if we can say well if even if people who want to get rid of that, of that kind of way of organizing ourselves sexually and in our families, from a religious perspective, they don't respect that more, that morality, that ethic, the material consequences are huge, and they must be able to see that, no? I mean, the material consequences of, of the disorder, the addiction, the, the despair, the, the, the children being raised in such terrible ways without any stability, the fact that children aren't being engendered and we're going into a demographic death spiral. How can these people keep going down that path, even as they see all these material, physical, uh, uh, you know, real statistical things that they can watch approaching that are so terrible for our society? That's a great question. And I think there are two parts to the answer. One part is that the sexual revolutionaries do a very good job of creating propaganda to divert people's attention from all the facts that you just named, right? So we at the Ruth Institute, we actually have a whole resource center on censorship and propaganda because the propaganda is so intense. I mean, if you're going to try to build a society around the idea that sex does not make babies and we should just stop this whole baby making sex connection, right? You got to pump a lot of propaganda into the into the world to make that even sound remotely mm-hmm. plausible. So true. So yeah. So so the things you're talking about, you know, the the dire consequence of uh, un- unmarried parenting and the instability and the broken hearts all of those different consequences they do they do their best to 
downplay those. Make sure nobody gets to talk about those. People who've been victimized don't get a turn of the microphone ever <laughs> to tell their story, you know, about why they regret their abortion. Uh, lots and lots of ways that, that we're flooded with propaganda. And so to your listeners, if you ever feel like you're being overwhelmed with propaganda, the answer is yes, you are. You are correct to feel that, you know. I mean, it's everywhere, right? So that's that, that's part of the answer. I think the other part of the answer is on the part of the what you might call the consumer or the, the sort of ordinary person who has in some way participated in the sexual revolution and who embraces it. I think it's hard for us as humans, as fallen humans, it's hard for us to acknowledge that we've done something wrong, you know, and to be sorry and to turn our lives around. That's always that's always difficult, although people do it all the time. But it's something kind of miraculous. You know, we, we know that as Catholics, it's not natural. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like it's, it's grace. It's, uh, you know. A miracle, supernatural, not natural, to be to, to say I was wrong and to bear all of that psychic cost of saying I was wrong and I'm sorry, you know. So there's that aspect that people drag their feet, you know, it's kind of to be expected that people will drag their feet about that. But the other aspect is, um, and I did say this in my column that you referred to, the other aspect is that sexual activity is addictive and we need to face up to the fact that is it is addictive. I think most adults, once you start thinking about it, you realize, we can realize as adults, you know, with some experience that we can get obsessed and, you know, we've got to have it. We need it. We need it. And if you're not married to anybody, if you're, you know, if you need the act itself, then you feel like, oh, I got to have it. And you're looking at the dating app trying to find somebody who can satisfy you, you know. And and if you're, if you're addicted, if you've got this kind of, I got to have it, I got to have it, if you're you're married that's actually not a bad thing right because you're being drawn to your partner you should be drawn to your partner this is how that that little that little bit of chemical addiction that we have that's actually okay if you're married to a halfway decent human um, either through the act itself or to the particular person that you're that you're um, addicted to well that's not bad but if you're not married and you're messing around with some guy you met on a dating app or at a bar or something eh, now you got a problem and and so the addictive aspect of it means that people feel like, oh, gosh, if I don't get to have sex and I have to deal with a baby every time I think about sex, if that's the way it's going to be, I can't do that. That's crazy. I can't live like that. Get me out of Texas. If you're thinking like that, that's a big red flag for addiction because you really won't die without sex. No one has ever died because they didn't have sex, right? But your brain, <laughs> but if your brain is tricking you, see, if your brain is saying you're going to die, you're going to die, you got to have it, got to have it, that's, that's an addict brain talking. Well, and right? you're, also, you're also living in a culture which is bathed in sexual provocation night and that's day. Right. That's right. That's right. It's feeding that. Mm -hmm. right? That's the whole porn, the whole pornified aspect of our culture. Feeding the profits of the dating apps. I mean, think about that. Dr. Moore, speaking of dating apps, you quote the CEO of Tinder, um, probably the most well-known, um, actually not dating app, hookup app, mm -hmm. um, who says the, the company um, generally does not take political stands unless it is relevant to our business. And I thought how ironic and that's sort of, you know, as you were saying, the entire revolution, sexual revolution is pinned up on this idea of separating sex from babies. And yet here he's sort of He's the emperor with no clothes saying basically this is relevant to our business because sex creates 
babies. I thought it was interesting because we just saw this week in the big abortion case that's before the Supreme Court, all the amicus briefs were filed on the side of those who favor abortion. And I was stunned by how many white shoe corporate law firms were on there. And I wonder if you think this characterization is fair, you know, just as these dating and hookup apps um, their business model is premised on abortion yep. and allowing men to use women for sex. These other corporations, basically, I mean, it's relevant to their business because they need to use women for profit and, and they can't allow, you know, they can't literally afford, or at least that's what they think, I guess, to let women have families. Yep. Yep. I, I, that's very true. First, first thing I want to uh, just call attention to the CEO of the match group, which owns match dot com and tinder it's a woman ceo so it's a woman saying this is relevant to our corporate bottom line so i thought that was and she made a big deal out of it so okay i'll make a big deal out of it too this is a woman who's bought that whole line right and her yes her business model is dependent on abortion as the backup plan for a hookup gone wrong where gone wrong means baby dr morris i don't know why i find that even more depressing to know that she's a woman i I shouldn't but i do i do too i do too i i totally Totally agree with you, but but the the corporate America, the law firms, the uh, Fortune 500 companies, the big banks, all these companies that support Planned Parenthood, that support the whole of the sexual revolution. It's very interesting, isn't it, that they think their interests depend on it and on the availability of abortion and the whole sexual revolution. The other aspect of corporate support and big law firm support for the sexual revolution is this. Because of the ready availability of abortion and contraception, it has become the price of entry into all the professions is delayed childbearing. Delayed childbearing is the norm for professionals, for educated people for people with uh, law degrees or MD degrees or things like that. If you're going to achieve in the professions, it's almost a given that you, you can't, you've got to put off having children, okay? And so that's another way that the whole economy has adapted itself, has wrapped itself around abortion and contraception. And so what does that mean? It means the people at the peak of the professions generally are people with fewer children, people who delayed their entry into childbearing. Yes, we have Amy Coney Barrett, who, but she's an outlier. Everybody knows she's the exception, right? A woman at the top of the legal profession with seven children. That's not normal, which is why they all lost their minds over her. The other women were childless. The other women on the Supreme Court are childless, right? So you're competing against people who have no, who have no children, no child responsibilities, and who have probably taken advantage of both abortion and contraception at some point in their 20s and 30s, because that's just kind of how it goes, you know, here. Dr. Morris, at the Ruth Institute, you don't just concentrate on this, this, these parts of the sexual revolution. You also talk a lot about transgender issues, transgender ideology. Yes. And you could say that transgender ideology is the outside envelope or the outside edge of the, of the sexual revolution or the latest assault, even though I think there are other things going on underneath the surface that we're going to be confronted with fairly soon. What is, I can see that corporate America has bought in, bought into the trans, all transgender um, ideology, all, all sections of it in a very big way. Where is their profit there in, in going after that, um, you know, going in so strongly for transgender ideology? Well, that's re- that's a really interesting question. And first of all, let me say that there are, here's where you have differences across the different industries and occupations, because there are people 
in the medical profession and the healthcare professions who are making a lot of money on transgenderism. And so, again, we can't ignore that. That's not true of everybody, obviously. There are people who believe it because they believe it. There are also plenty of doctors and healthcare professionals who are aghast at the whole transgender business. But they're professional societies who, who choose to speak for the whole profession. Their professional society is completely captured by the sexual revolutionary ideologues. And that's happened. That's been going on for decades, you know. Um, and so there, I think at this point, there is some mismatch between the official voice of the profession and the average doctor. I mean, I think there's quite a bit of mismatch. Um, there's also quite a bit of mismatch between um, the parts of the LGBT movement. There is open warfare. I don't know if you guys know this, <laughs> but the LGBT thing is falling apart because the T's and the L's are in open warfare mm-hmm. with each other. <laughs> the, lesbi- the lesbians despise this. They despise transgenderism, and they are finding that they are now being thrown under the bus. You know, they the, the lesbians were very useful in the campaign to redefine marriage because when they wanted to say, "Oh, gay marriage is no big deal," oh, they would always show two harmless-looking lesbians with their children. That would always be in the commercials, right? I mean, mm-hmm. think about the of commercials course. that we saw. There's a very you know non-threatening, nice ladies with their children. That's what gay marriage is all about, and they, also a biological in a sense because one of those women could have had the children as opposed to two males who have to use surrogacy or some other... That's right, that's right. It seemed more benign. It all seemed much more benign. That's exactly right. Um, But pretty much right away after gay marriage was um, dictated by the Supreme Court, the LGBT establishment pivoted to transgenderism. So all of the money, social infrastructure, media, all of that power that they had amassed during gay marriage, that's now being pointed towards transgenderism, which, like I said, feminists and lesbians despise. So it's kind of an interesting situation for them. Uh, we do our best to stay in as, as open communication as possible with all, you know, with, with anybody who's at war with any part of the sexual revolution. We want to talk to you, you know. Um, but um, the, the embrace of transgenderism by corporate America is, I think, um, deceptive. And what I mean by that is it, there's no question they've all bought in 100%, at, at least publicly. But beneath that surface, I think there are cracks in the structure uh, that we have to be looking for and trying to recruit people who agree more with our views and who have never had a reason to come over and hang out and talk with us because they always thought we were, you know, we were pariahs and so on, as you know. Uh, <laughs> right, Freaks. Right, 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 right. But, but, but now they're thinking, well, maybe mm, mm, this is not so great. <laughs> so This all reminds me, Dr. Morse, of the, the Women's March and there was a big sort of civil war within the leaders over um, you know, whether or not to include men who self-identified as women. And I'm seeing this now, uh, this this crack that you're talking about or this fault line um, in this discussion over Texas and the Supreme yep. Court case where there's a fight over the language and whether or not yes, they should be using pregnant people. I saw the phrase people who menstruate and it made me think, won't this, you know, upset left-wing feminists who find it degrading to be referred that way, you know, the kind of pioneering liberal feminists who 
sort of fought for recognition of the unique struggle that women deal with. Uh, so where do you think this is all going to land and will this undercut their efforts on the pro-abortion front? Uh, there's no question that it has the potential to under undermine them. No question about it. Whether it does or not, in part depends on whether we take advantage of this moment, right? Um, how we conduct ourselves is a, a crucial part of the answer to how it's going to turn out. So we may, we also noticed exactly the thing you're talking about. The pregnant people are, are uh, and, and just even notice the names of the court cases. It's Women's Whole Health. The clinic is Women's Whole health clinic or something like that, right? Um, the the act that Congress is trying to pass in order to override the Texas thing has women in the title of the act, right? So um, there are, that, so that rift is very real and we need to keep just speaking the truth. At some point, sometime, one of the hazards of my line of work is that you get so wrapped up and jumping up and down about the crazy things people are saying, you know, that you can end up looking crazy yourself if you're not careful, right? But <laughs> No, we don't know what you're talking about, Dr. Morris. <laughs> so, so periodically, we just have to step back from the whole thing and say, okay, look, there's a lot of chaos going on out here. Here are the fundamental truths. The fundamental truth is that the human species is a mammal species. We are male and female and nothing else. That's it. This is what I love about you. I like the way that you go to the foundational things, the basic things that, that never go away, no matter how much propaganda is out there, no matter how much we're being told different things. So thank you, Dr. Uh, Morris, for joining us. And it was a great pleasure. Hopefully we can have you on again soon. Thanks so much for having me. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we'll enter into a dramatic dialogue in which St. John tells Jesus that the apostles saw someone driving out demons in his name, and they tried to stop him because he was not one of their number. Jesus replied that they shouldn't stop him because no one who performs a miracle in Jesus' name can at the same time speak ill of him. Then he gives us a principle. Whoever is not against us is for us. We live in a society polarized by politics and a church rent with various sad divisions. Jesus himself admits that some are for him and others are against him. We know that 11 of the 12 apostles were for him, that Mary and Joseph were for him, that Mary Magdalene, Susanna and Joanna, the centurion, the Syrophoenician women, and so many of those whom Jesus had healed who couldn't stop talking about him even when he asked them not to, were clearly on his side. But we also witness that there are those who actively are against Jesus, like Satan in the desert, some of the scribes and Pharisees during Jesus' public ministry, Herod the Great at Jesus' birth, Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas at Jesus' death, even for a short time, St. Peter, whom Christ called Satan and told him to get behind him when he rejected the possibility that the Lord would suffer. Yet despite the reality of division, Jesus gives a principle with which he wants his followers to live. Whoever is not against us is for us. There's a temptation among many serious believers to focus so much on what distinguishes us from others that we lose what unites us. And as we and others focus on those differences, we pull ourselves and push others away. We can begin with what we criticize rather than what we admire. We can fault others for what they don't get right rather than commence with what they do. We see this tendency in the gospel with many of the Pharisees, literally the separated ones. 
They were constantly distinguishing themselves from others that they really grew no longer to focus on uniting themselves with others. They began to pray like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, giving thanks that they're not like the others who are guilty of various types of notorious sins. Jesus wants us to recognize in others those parts that are united with him and not to stop them like St. John the Beloved was trying to stop people from casting out devils as if Jesus' will would have been that others suffer diabolical possession or obsession another day. Against this tendency to distinguish and exclude, Jesus wants us to have a different attitude, his own. He who came to seek and save what was lost, to reunite the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to go out after the one and bring that person back to the ninety-nine, ultimately to reconcile all things in himself. He had come to set the prisoners free, to defeat Satan once and for all. But the still immature disciples wanted to stop someone from casting out devils, from doing the Lord's work, essentially because they were more concerned with what they wanted to be their exclusive prerogative in God's kingdom than in accomplishing God's work. None of us should ever think that we have a monopoly on the name, mission, message, and power of Jesus. We should never find God's actions in others a threat, but rather something to marvel at and praise Him for. We should, of course, want to help people come to the fullness of the truth about God revealed to us by Christ and His church, but we should rejoice that others, at whatever stage of revelation they've received, would be corresponding to the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us in the Gospel this Sunday that anyone who gives a cup of water to drink because we belong to Him is ultimately cooperating with grace, is corresponding to the kingdom. But we also shouldn't have too soft a distinction about who is doing God's work and who isn't, as if everyone, including each of us, is doing God's work by the simple fact that we say or think we are. Jesus immediately in the gospel specified those who are in fact against him, namely those who give scandal, those who by their words and example teach others, especially the young, not about how to know, love, and serve the Lord, but rather how to sin. Such is Jesus' love for his children that he passionately warns everyone who harms little ones through scandal to know what punishment they should expect. If anyone he says, puts a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me. It would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. The word scandal in the original language of the Bible meant two things. Something that causes another to fall and something that's an obstacle to someone's doing good. Applied to matters of faith, scandal is something that either causes another to sin against God, fall from him, or something that prevents the access of another to God's kingdom. We can easily call to mind those whose deeds lead others astray. Bishops and priests who haven't walked the walk, as we've seen in the recent scandal of sexual abuse, and the failure of those in positions of authority to eradicate them or to tell the truth about them. Celebrities from the world of music, movies, and sports, whose example draws the young into drugs, to using others in relationships, into the worship of status. Educators who teach young people in public schools confusing ideas about human nature, or promote premarital sex, homosexuality, abortion, and other topics in ways that are totally contrary to what God wants. Or politicians who pretend that their interpretation of the Constitution trumps their duties to God. If it were possible to buy stock in a millstone business, now would be the time to buy. But we should never focus on the speck in others' eyes and miss the plank in our own. Each of us needs to ask whether by our words and actions we facilitate or frustrate the lessons God wants others, especially the young, to learn from us. Does our example inspire or discourage young people to pray, 
to come to Mass, to go to confession, to learn the faith, to fight against sin, to sacrifice ourselves to care for the poor and the needy, to use appropriate language, to be honest, to stay faithful to the Lord in terms of love, sex, marriage, and family, to forgive and give people second, third, and 77th chances, to welcome migrants as we would Jesus himself, to encourage people to see the good in others or the evil, to inspire others to live off every word that comes from God's mouth, or to think that they're fine if they ignore it, or motivating or dissuading the young people to become true saints, to love God with all their mind, heart, soul, and strength. The young learn from those who are older what's really important in life. So we need to focus on what we're teaching by the way we live and the way we speak. At the end of the gospel, Jesus speaks about being brutal with ourselves, to cut from our life whatever leads to sin, telling us to cut off our foot or pluck out our eye if it leads us to sin or leads others to take scandal. If we have bad habits, the Lord wants to give us the grace and motivation to change. In another part of the gospel, Jesus says words that seem to be in contradiction with his phrase this Sunday, whoever's not with us, whoever's not against us is with us. When Jesus was challenged by those who accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, Jesus, after reminding them that divided kingdoms can't stand, said, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. The statements are not contradictory, but they do need to be harmonized. By the reconciliation of both truths, we learn that it's possible for someone to be gathering with Jesus while not necessarily being visibly with us. That's why we should never presume that someone who's not with us is necessarily not with Jesus. This is a key point in terms of ecumenical and interreligious work for the kingdom and the common good. But second, more profoundly, reconciling both statements helps us to see that there are parts of us that are with the Lord and parts of us that are not with Him. Parts of us gather with Jesus and parts of us scatter. St. Augustine says that because there can be people partially with and partially against the Lord, the Lord affirms that we should not reject that which in a person is with the Lord, but that we should reject that which in a person or in us is against the Lord. St. John Chrysostom makes essentially the same point, that those who are not against the Lord are at least partially on his side, like different nations fighting a similar adversary, as the man in the gospel is casting out God's enemy, the devil, in Jesus' name. The essential takeaway is that it's God's will that we seek to bring all parts of us into coherence with God and to bring everyone into a communion willed by God. The great opportunity we have for bringing our entire life into alignment with God happens at Mass. So we seek to enter into Holy Communion with Him, something that's not meant to be partial but total, and in Him with each other. He wills that nothing in us should be against Him, but totally with Him and with His Church. That's why we begin every Mass calling to mind those parts of our life that aren't in total agreement with God's will, and asking for the grace to forgive us and to help us precisely achieve that total communion. So we prepare this Sunday to hear Jesus speak to us in sacred scripture, to receive His body and blood inside us. Let us ask Him to heal our wounded eyes, or our sinful hands, or occasionally scandalous feet, so that every part of us and the lives of those He has entrusted to us may be with Him in this life and in the next. God bless you. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 